Hello and welcome to North Christian Church. This is Pastor Ed Collins and this message is titled The Secret to Good is Grace. Fantastic principles set before us. Very excited about this message. Let's open up in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of doing this very thing of breaking bread together, of fellowshipping with you through our relationship with your son, Father. Thank you so much for sending him on our behalf when we were hopeless and helpless, Father. Thank you for giving us the humility to repent. Thank you for giving us repentance. And thank you for giving us saving faith. Father, these things are things that we should never become familiar with. But rather, we pray that with your patience by our side, we learn to appreciate them fully for what they are. Grace gifts as an expression of your love. Father, these are good things. And we thank you for the knowledge of them. We do pray for those in the congregation that are still hurting or suffering and are in need of comfort that only you can give. Father, if your will's done through us, we pray that we don't stand in the way, but you use us as individuals or maybe as a congregation or even as a ministry father to minister to others that need it, Father, that need your loving hand in their lives, your comfort. Father, we pray also for those in this world that are still lost, that they be humbled, that they receive this grace of yours and that they be saved, so that we might have additional brothers and sisters in Christ, Father. We are most grateful and thankful for the good that was accomplished on the cross of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, your Son. Father, we thank you for sending him by means of grace. We do just ask for blessings on this message and May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, this is the secret to good is grace. And I'll say it again. I think I said it last time. If you haven't been keeping up, a lot of what I'm going to present won't have the same uh, depth to it, the same effect even um, as if you had listened to the past few messages so I encourage you if you've got the time right now stop this this message and go listen to whichever ones you've missed and then come back to this one there's nothing wrong with listening to two in a row let's begin with a statement regarding good works though and this will be a continuance of the momentum that we enjoyed last time around Good works, here's the statement, they are never, ever by means of work done by you in the absence of his grace. Never. Good works 
have to be the result of grace. Again, they are never ever by means of work done by you in the absence of his grace. And related to this, the past couple of messages pivoted on the following. Go to Titus 2 verse 14. Titus 2 verse 14. The past couple of messages pivoted on the following passage. Titus 2 14. Again, the point on the board though, good works, they are never ever by means of work done by you in the absence of his grace. This is all about God's good work in us. Think of Philippians 1.6. He guarantees that he'll complete this good work in us. And it is good because it is grace. Titus 2.14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. In other words, he sanctifies us for a reason. So here was our launching pad for our messages as of late, uh, titled Overcome Evil with Good and understanding good that sanctifies. Those are the last two message titles, overcoming evil with good and understanding good that sanctifies. Up here on the board, four good works, Titus 2 verse 14. Good implies God's scale of values, not man's. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. That's James 1.17. Four good works, Titus 2.14. Again, this is what we're zealous for. This is the reason, the purpose that God sanctifies us, to bring glory to himself. Again, but good, we have to understand what good is. Good implies God's scale of values, not man's. And to quote James, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. The impetus for our recent messages then has been this from Titus 2.14. For good works, we have to understand what this means. If we're sanctified for the purpose of being zealous for good works, then we need to understand what the Bible means. When it uses the word good in context there, there are a lot of people in this world that think they're good, but they're not because they are exercising, quote, good outside of God's grace means. Again, for good works, if we're sanctified for the purpose of being zealous for good works, then we need to understand what the Bible means when it uses the word good in context here. So for the sake of these messages, here's a good place to start up here on the board. Understanding good that sanctifies. That was... Uh, last message. Understanding good that sanctifies. That was the crux of last message. Grace is good as is the humility required to receive it. So we're talking about, again, the sphere of God. Good things being in that sphere. Sanctification, humility, grace. All these things are in that sphere. And we function in his economy that way. Remember, in God's economy, grace is the currency. 
So maybe a quick and easy way to think of this is if it's from God, it's good. If it's not, it isn't. Again, if it's from God, it's good. If it's not, it isn't. And do not do that sophomore thing and say, well, I did something good for someone else. Yeah, but God didn't want you to do that thing. You understand? God didn't want you to do that thing. But I did this thing that was good, and I did that thing that was good, and I did this. Just listen to yourself. Why did you even do it in the first place? So you could brag about it? You understand? If it's from God, it's good. If it's not, it isn't. So just don't play any tricks. That's the point the Spirit's making here. In true Holy Spirit form, God has asked us to look deep within ourselves. Even ask that we read the book, Covert Arrogance, on the website to help guide us in this journey. And just so you know, I'm reading it. I wrote it, and I'm reading it. And it's probably, I don't even know how many times I've read it. In other words, read it. Remember, covert arrogance is the one of the two versus overt. Covert arrogance is the one that hides out in plain sight with what the military calls plausible deniability for its covert operations. Some of you in the military know what I'm talking about. But in other words, covert arrogance, it's right there in front of us all, but it's hiding with what the military calls calls plausible deniability. That's the analog. And they use it for describing covert operations. Here's a principle from our recent studies on this note up here on the board. Plausible deniability. What is that? A covert arrogant a covertly arrogant person deceives themselves. Deceives themselves. They they say, Well, I didn't know any better. I didn't know any better. So I, you know Therefore, I'm not, I'm not liable. I have plausible deniability, in other words. But that's just a person who willfully deceives themselves. A covertly arrogant person deceives themselves. This is a strategy that allows plausible deniability when faced with judgment. Remember, arrogant people hate to be judged. They'd rather not know the bar exists, or they'd rather go, you know, la, 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 I can't see the bar. A lot of people won't read their Bibles for that very reason, for plausible deniability. I didn't know I wasn't supposed to be sleeping around. I didn't know I wasn't supposed to be a, a drunkard. I didn't know I wasn't supposed to be judging other people. I didn't know I wasn't supposed to be lying all the time to get ahead or cheating on my taxes. I didn't know all that stuff was actually in the Bible. So how can God hold me accountable? That's called plausible deniability because it is in the Bible and God gave you the Bible to read. Remember, Arrogant people hate to be judged. God's judgments are especially visceral. Better to remain willfully ignorant, says the arrogant person. Better to remain willfully ignorant, because then that way you can deny, you can deceive yourself and run off and do whatever you feel like and say, you know, I just, I just didn't know any better. God can't hold me accountable because I didn't know any better. That's called willful ignorance, and God sees the heart. The Bible speaks to this. Go to Galatians 6.3. Go to Galatians 6, verse 3. The Bible speaks to this. There's no getting around it. And remember, God sees the heart. Plausible deniability. A covertly arrogant person deceives themselves. 
It's a strategy that allows plausible deniability when faced with judgment. Remember, arrogant people hate to be judged. God's judgments are especially visceral. Better to remain willfully ignorant, says the arrogant person. Galatians 6.3, for if anyone thinks he is something, we looked at this last time, how great is that person's darkness when they think they're in light. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. He deceives himself. That's how plausible, a plausible deniability uh, comes about. The, and the result is better to remain willfully ignorant, says the arrogant person. Again, verse 3. For if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Now, on that phrase, he deceives himself, up here on the board, this is the epitome of covert arrogance. The epitome. It, quote, hides sinfulness away, you know, out of sight. <laughs> well, if, if it's out of sight, it's out of mind. Therefore, I'm not liable to it. I'm not, I can't be expected to, you know, bear up under that load or, or under God's judgment in that area because it's way over there. I'm over here. This kind of a game. This is the epitome of covert arrogance. It hides sinfulness away out of, quote, sight, even though God sees everything. It's a silly folly type thing, but people do it. This strategy allows sin to persist and avoid the scrutiny of introspective self-examination. Calling darkness light and light, light darkness accomplishes this. Again, verse 3, he deceives himself. Jump forward to verse 7, Galatians 6, verse 7. What does it say? Do not be deceived. <laughs> After a litany of things, you know, do not be deceived. Don't do that thing from verse 3. Why? God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap the flesh, from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. The remedy to this kind of arrogance is exactly what the Spirit's been emphasizing from this pulpit as of late, whether through, it's the, whether through the messages or the blogs. So we've been consistently encouraged with Holy Scripture. Look at verse 9. And let us not grow weary of doing good. That is fantastic encouragement, right? Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. We are talking about doing good. This is it. Don't grow weary of it. Let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. That's been one of the wonderful things that I've had the pleasure of, of hearing about as a pastor is members of the congregation doing good to each other because they are of the household of faith. And that's biblical. Now's a perfect time to bring into remembrance all the good work from our previous two messages. First, up here on the board, this was a message titled even, Overcome Evil with Good. But overcome evil with good. You don't have to actively or exhaustingly try to overcome evil, even that which is in your own life, by force. Love this principle. You simply leave it be and turn to good. Good is light, and light extinguishes darkness without fail. 
simply turn to good. That's the strategy. Repent. That's how you overcome evil with good. You simply repent. You turn from it. You don't wrestle with it. You don't say, I'm going to do this thing, Lord. You push aside. I'll take care of this thing. Let's step back for a moment now and observe what the Spirit's building uh, us up with. Because he, he's obviously got a plan for us. He's obviously got this curriculum that we've been on now for weeks. In summary, he's saying, first and foremost, quit hiding behind your self-made deceptions. Don't deceive yourself. We just read that in Galatians. Do not be deceived. That was verse 3 and verse uh, 7, right, of Galatians 6. So the first and foremost thing is quit hiding behind your self-made deceptions. Quit, quit pretending, in other words, that you don't know exactly what he's been getting at as of late. Don't go la-la-la. And don't be skipping messages because they're painful. Don't do that thing. That's called willful ignorance, and he doesn't tolerate it. So don't do that. In other words, do not deceive yourself, a la Galatians 6.3, because in the end, just like Holy Scripture says, you're only hurting yourself. Then, once you're done with all of that folly of deceiving yourself, you turn away from whatever it is that has had you in bondage. Don't try to wrestle it into submission. That's the point on the board. You don't try to wrestle it into submission. Rather, repent from it. So in other words, don't lie about its existence. That's the first step. And then once you understand its existence, don't make the mistake of wrestling with it. Rather, repent from it and turn from it. That's how you overcome evil with good. Recognize it. Confess it. Right? Homologeo. Confess it to God. Say, I see the same thing you see now. And instead of wrestling with it and becoming religious about it, Turn away from it. Look for something good to do, like you're doing right now. <laughs> I mean, if, if, if all bets are off and you can't think of anything to do when you're tempted to do something bad, read your Bible. And finally, after those two things are complete, the Spirit's encouraging us towards doing good. So identify it, turn from it, but turn to good. Galatians 6, 9 again. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let us do good to everyone. In other words, let God's grace flow through us. Do you guys remember the gristmill analogy? How it flows through us, that we benefit when it flows through us? This is in front of us here in verse 10. Let us do good to everyone. Take the grace that's called today. Take the grace that's called that oxygen that you just uh, breathed and the food that you just ate this morning or this afternoon. Whatever. Take all of that grace and use it for good. Don't waste your energy, certainly not on wrestling with evil or certainly not playing that worst game of you know, plausible deniability or willful ignorance. Don't waste your time and energy on that. Do good. And for additional encouragement, the Spirit's helped us get back to our roots. Again, with the very definition of good, I've thoroughly enjoyed that. The very definition of good, 
which always begins with the following core principle. Up here on the board, the best good you can ever do in time is receive God's grace. How about that? How about that? Remember, remember in uh, what was it? Um, Proverbs. I forget the I forget the the book, but um, or the chapter. Excuse me. The beginning of wisdom is to acquire wisdom. It's the same thing. The best thing you can ever do in time is to receive God's grace. Make that decision to receive his grace. That's the starting point. So I hope you understand what I mean when I say that. It's more than just that, but that's a good way to think about it. In essence, it means that anything good in us or that comes out of us must be the result of God's grace. I need you to concentrate now because we're going to now read one of the most clearly stated doctrines in the Holy Bible on the topic the Spirit just placed on the board. It's very, very clear. So you need to concentrate. I really want this to just to be driven home in your soul and you could just put it to rest. Go to 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8. And we'll just dissect it a little bit. It'll make a whole lot of sense to you and you'll be delivered as a result, if not already. Again, the point on the board, the best good you can ever do in time is receive God's grace. 2 Corinthians 9.8, speaking of grace, 2 Corinthians 9.8 says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that, having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. How about that? How fantastic is that? Is that? Think, of, think of this verse this way, up here on the board. 2 Corinthians 9.8. Number one, God gives grace abundantly to the humble, of course. That's always there. God gives grace abundantly to the humble. Number two, so that. In other words, for the purpose of. Number three, that you are sufficiently able to, in all things, Number four, abound in every good work. That's, that's so clear in this one verse. God gives grace abundantly so that you are sufficiently able to abound in every good work. Drop the mic, right? That's it. Look at verse 8 again. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So hopefully you see the connection between grace and good here. Now, consider this verse with what the Spirit has just taught us with our previous point. The best good you can ever do in time is receive God's grace. Well, the secret to good is grace. The secret to good is grace. Hence our message title. Think about this with me. So, when, when we venture out into Holy Scripture, you know, to figure out what it means to do good. I mean, if you go religiously to Scripture, you end up in, in tangles because you're looking for works. And the Bible just keeps reiterating, this is not about works. This is about my grace. It's about bringing glory to me, not you. This is not about works. Don't go into the Bible looking for good works to do. Look for grace. Mm, very different. So when we venture out into Holy Scripture to figure out what it means to do good, 
or more specifically, what it means to be zealous for good works, which is how the Holy Bible, remember, describes the purpose of sanctification. Big picture, right? When we venture out this way, we come back with a simple statement. I'll say it again. The secret to good is grace. That's our message title. The secret to good. You want to know what good is? You understand grace. Why do you, <laughs> why do you think Satan and the king of darkness spend so much time perverting grace? It's so that you don't do any good. It's so that you waste your time and your energy and your God-given gifts on pursuing things that look good or are defined as good, but they're really not good. I hope that makes sense. The secret to good is grace. Do you see how immediately, think about that point in the board, the secret to good is grace. Very simple. But do you see how immediately the human flesh is disarmed by this simple statement on the board? The secret to good is grace. The human flesh is completely disarmed by the statement on the board. I hope you see that. Maybe maybe you're fighting it a little yourself. Maybe that, that tension, that fleshly tension is building up in you right now. Or maybe something so simple is a, is a bit offensive to your natural sensibilities. My point is, of course it's offensive to your flesh. That's what it's supposed to be offensive to your flesh. I think sometimes we forget that. Again, the point of the board, though, is the secret to good is grace. Think about this for a moment. Consider the religious person who's right now listening to a religious message and their flesh is loving it because it gives the flesh a works program where creature credit is the currency. That's what we call anti-grace. That's not the point of the board at all. That's called anti-grace. That's called working to do good. In their world, the quote secret to good is works, human works, not grace. So that's what we call anti-grace. That's what it means to be deceived. And as the Spirit's been illuminating in Holy Scripture, religious people are willfully deceived. They want this. That's the craziest thing of all. They want this thing because it feeds their flesh. They are, as we just noted, covertly arrogant. Let us not be like them, my friends. That's the point of these messages. Let us not be like the covert, arrogant person. Rather, let us understand the truth on the board and the recurring truth from the Spirit as of late, which is, again, this. The best good you can ever do in time is receive God's grace. The sister principle is, as we noted last time, you probably remember this, understanding good that sanctifies. Grace is good, as is the humility required to receive it. Grace is good, as is the humility required to receive it. Again, we've been seeking, what is good? What does it mean? What does the Bible have to say about good? Well, it certainly says that grace is good. 
And it certainly says that humility is good. And that's what's required to actually receive it. So as we noted in Holy Scripture, grace saves and delivers us in every phase of sanctification. I want you to keep the point of the board fresh in your mind and also what I just said, that grace saves and delivers us in every phase of sanctification. In other words, I want you to step back and say, whew, God's grace is the umbrella. It, it, it spans my entire life, my, the entire length of my life, from the day I was born until the, the day I die. God's grace was always ever-present. You see, that's how we want to think. And so when we read this passage together, I want you to use that thought to help knit it together in your soul. Go to 1 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. <clears throat> 1 Peter 1, verse 1. Grace saves and delivers us in every phase of sanctification. And that's a very good thing. 1 Peter 1, verse 1. We're going to read this chapter together. I'm, not, I'm going to go reasonably quick because we don't have license to stop much. We just want you to take a big picture overview. 1 Peter 1, 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect, exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace, boy, that's the second time that's come up, huh? May grace and peace be multiplied to you. We're going to close with this message, by the way, with these two words. Bless, verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. That's a reference of, uh, to experiential sanctification is obviously in view. We're delivered in time because we have a living hope. We're born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We might even say that's a reference to positional sanctification. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And we have ultimate sanctification in view. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Again, the point on the board, we're trying to amplify, understanding good that sanctifies. Grace is good, as is the humility required to receive it. Verse 6, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through it, though it is tested by fire, excuse me, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring that, oh, excuse me, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. 
It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Remember, the angels are watching this entire thing we call human history. Verse 13, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. As obedient children, look at the point on the board. What is uh, an obedient person? An obedient person is a humble person, and a humble person receives grace. That is good. That's understanding good that sanctifies. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Verse 16, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, Conduct yourselves with fear through the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed for the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the, the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, Verse 24, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Again, we didn't have a whole lot of time to spend on that. Maybe you reread it, but big picture stuff, understanding good that sanctifies, grace is good. Hopefully you saw an awful lot of grace you, you obviously, we obviously saw a lot of obedience in there, which is obviously a reference to humility. Grace is good, as is the humility required to receive it. Remember, receiving grace is a command from God, which implies obedience. Just to reiterate our previous three principles, number one, the secret to good is grace. Going to net it all out, the secret to good is grace. Number two, the best good you can ever do in time is receive God's grace. Receive it. And then the third thing we looked at and developed with the Spirit is understanding good that sanctifies grace is good, as is the humility required to receive it. Now, considering what we just read in 1 Peter 1, Let's add one final piece to the puzzle, okay? Go back to 1 Peter 1.14. 1 Peter 1.14. What does it say? It says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. 
But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. You shall be holy, for I am holy. Point as obedient children. Any guesses what the final installment in our list is? Here's a drum roll, right? Ta-da! Never seen this before. <laughs> Sanctification is a function of obedience. Sanctification is by grace. God gives grace to the humble. The humble person is the obedient person. There it is. That's the string of pearls. That's all the connective tissue. Nonetheless, sanctification is a function of obedience. So that kind of settles it, doesn't it? I mean, to summarize all of this in one complete thought, here we go. Up here on the board, a humble person is an obedient person that receives grace and is sanctified as a result, fulfilling God's own purposes for them. That's it. That's what the Spirit's been developing in us. A humble person is an obedient person that receives grace and is sanctified as a result. And this fulfills God's own purposes for them. God saves and sanctifies us because he has definite plans for his children. Think about that. He's our father. It's okay to think of him that way. He's not this sterile God. He's our father. We're his children. Remember, our Father in heaven is intrinsically good. And he desires to do good by his own children. I mean, what good father doesn't want to do good by his own children? Jesus Christ paid the price for our sinfulness so that God could sanctify us all the way to heaven. All the way to heaven. Now, if we think about what I just described in terms of the grand scheme of life itself. God wishes to sanctify us all the way to heaven. Like, in other words, this entire thing called human history. Grace has been the centerpiece of it. Jesus Christ made it all possible. God's will is to sanctify us. It's a plan. That's why in previous messages... I would call it out as God's salvific plan. It's, and it's not just one point in time. Oh, well, when I was, you know, 15 years old, I was saved, and that's the end of salvation. No, that's that's the start of it. If you really want to know, that's the start of it. That's that's the start of him being able to pour out his grace in your life. <coughs> Excuse me. So if we think about what I just described in terms of the grand scheme of life itself. We have to step way, way back and ponder the most ancient of truths, beginning with what happened in the garden at the fall. I really need you to lift your thinking way up. I mean, way up here. We're looking at, from God's perspective, when he looks at human history, remember God sees everything at once. When he looks at human history, what what does that perspective look like? What does that perspective look like? Well, we might think of it this way. Before the fall, there was perfect peace and unadulterated love. Peace and love. Before the fall, in the garden, there was perfect peace and unadulterated love. Love permeated the environment. 
as the de facto standard of life. Does that make sense? Now, try to imagine the estate of Adam and Eve before the fall. Imagine that. Perfect peace, perfect love all the time. No enmity whatsoever with the holy God of the universe. Perfect fellowship. Imagine that. That's what existed before the fall. They had perfect fellowship with God. Well, guess what? The Bible says that God is love. That's 1 John 4, 8. They had perfect fellowship with God. And by the way, God is love. The interesting thing to note about this little exercise of imagining what it must have been like before the fall is that what we're really describing is the end result of being sanctified by God. Hmm. When we look at what it was like before the fall, what we're really describing, what we're really trying to imagine, is the end result of our own sanctification. In other words, the end goal of salvation and sanctification is to get us back to where we were before humanity fell. Remember, we broke fellowship with God. And by His grace, thank God, He has made a way of reconciliation. That's all salvation is, my friends, in a nutshell. It's a way to reconcile us back to Him by His own grace. He found a way. It's God's way by means of grace of healing the enmity between Himself and His fallen creatures. So, Whenever we describe what it was like before the fall in the garden, we are essentially describing the end goal of sanctification. He's bringing us back to him, back to the way it used to be, back to perfect fellowship, back to peace and love. The end goal, my friends, is reconciliation with God. And since God is love, the end goal of sanctification is love. John wrote about this in his first epistle. Go to 1 John 4, verse 7. 1 John 4, verse 7. The end goal of sanctification, my friends, is love. 1 John 4, 7. First John 4, verse 7 reads, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another." No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected or matured in us. In other words, he sanctifies us. Do you see that sweep right there? God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. In other words, he sanctifies us. What's the end goal? John essentially wrote about the end goal of sanctification. But since we are only in phase two of three phases of sanctification from our perspective, which is why we elevated our thinking earlier, 
from our perspective, we're only in phase two, right? Phase one is positional. Phase two is experiential. Phase three is in front of us still, ultimate. So when John wrote this, knowing that we're only, we've only gotten phase one and two out of the way, he wrote specifically about the love we have experientially in time. So the course is set for ultimate sanctification. But for now, we are to be satisfied and encouraged by the fact that we can enjoy his love experientially, at least to some degree. At least to some degree and in some increasing way as we continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of God. And that degree, of course, in the grace and knowledge of God, well, God gives grace to who? The humble. So the degree that we're sanctified, the degree that the end goal of sanctification is prevalent in our lives is based on what? Humility. Hmm. Here's the principle we've been developing. You probably guessed it already. The goal of sanctification, the divine context for the life of a believer, is love. This is what the goal of sanctification is. I'll close this way. Sanctification is reconciliation by God's grace of his own children to himself. We, we, we fractured our relationship with him in the garden. He's bringing us back to him by grace. Do you see? That's what sanctification is. It's why he saves us. Sanctification is reconciliation by God's grace of his children to himself. God is love. So this sanctification may be viewed also as our being reconciled with love itself. The sanctification may be viewed also as our being reconciled with love itself, since we're being reconciled with God. If we talk about good, is there a more profound place to begin and end the conversation than love? I think not. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible opportunity to study a word and to be given this kind of wisdom. Thank you for revealing to us your salvific plan and what it means to be sanctified and that sanctification is good because it's by grace. Father, make us humble. Give us faith. Make us want this all the more, Father. Show us. Reveal it to us. Humble us. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen.